The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. of a 
a culture at large venturing further and further away from God, from God's truth, from God's morality, from His righteousness that He reveals within His Word. And that's not to say that when I was younger, the entire you know, culture was Christian by no means, uh, but there still was a greater... There was a greater Christian presence. There was a greater Christian acceptance. There was a greater Christian understanding. It was really the foundation of what was right and wrong. Uh, God's Word and what God had spoken as right and was, what, what was right and what was wrong uh, ruled the day much more so uh, than now, in the here and now within our culture uh, that we live in today. And I, I've seen that regression uh, in my lifetime. And unfortunately, I study a passage like Micah chapter 2 and I say, my goodness, does this define our culture around us uh, so much? And there's a danger as we think of outside, as we think of the culture at large, there's a danger to point fingers and say, well, shame on them for this and shame on them for that. But that's not what God gives us His Word for, even tonight. Uh, we ought to, first and foremost, remove the beam out of our eye before we seek to remove the speck out of another person's eye. First and foremost... We ought to apply the word we're going to look to tonight to our own lives, to our own hearts, uh, to our own living. And one of the things God's been laying heavy upon my heart with children, six, four, and three, living in this culture that we live in, is how much does this world around us affect us in our living and in our thinking and in the way that we determine right and wrong? Does God's word truly lead and guide and direct us and determine for us what is true? Or how heavily are we influenced by the world around us that is getting further and further away from God and His Word and His ways? Uh, think of movies and television shows and just the general attitude of, of humanity as a whole. Uh, that has an effect on us, whether we realize it or not. Uh, you think of Abraham and Lot. And just the story that so often comes to my attention of Lot choosing to dwell in the city of better land but it had wicked people in it. And he chose that area where Abraham took the less fertile soil that was removed from the wickedness, and Lot's family was sacrificed in that in a sense. Lot's family was, was so influenced by the wickedness of the culture. Uh, we are called to be salt and light. We are called to be influencers of the culture and not influenced by a godless culture. And there, there's a, a battle in that. There's a, a danger even in that we're surrounded by such a godless culture that it affects us, that it influences us in a negative way. And so tonight as we look to this passage, I don't want it to be harping on all of that out there. First and foremost, we must examine our own heart, our own life, and say, how, how much do these things describe us, describe me? Um, what is it tonight that God is convicting me about personally, that I've let a little bit of this creep into my life? that I need to confess tonight and repent before God and find His forgiveness and restoration tonight. And so first and foremost, even though we'll talk about out there, first and foremost, we must talk about in here. And let's talk about our own hearts, our own souls, our own lives before the Lord. Signs of the time. Micah chapter 2. He describes in Micah chapter 2, in these verses we will look to, the sins of the people of this day and age in Israel's history. Uh, he will speak about the ones who were wealthy and more powerful and the injustices they were, were committing. And he will speak against the prophets even of the day who were false prophets, who were 
telling the people merely what they wanted to hear, not speaking the truth from God as the prophet of God, but, but giving way to the whims and the desires of the culture to be accepted, to be approved, and telling them whatever they desired to hear so they would be affirmed in their prophecy rather than persecuted and rejected. Let's read through the passage in its entirety. It's not, not long, not a lengthy chapter. And then I want to walk back through and just trace, trace some of these characteristics of a fallen culture, these characteristics of a society, a people that, that have moved far away from God. Chapter 2, verse 1 of the book of Micah. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily. For this is an evil time, and that day one shall take up a proverb against you and lament with a bitter lamentation, saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people. He has removed it from you to a turncoat. He has divided our fields. Therefore, you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy, for they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do you do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe of the garment from those who trust you as they pass by, like men returned from war. The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children. You have taken away my glory forever. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is defiled. It shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler of this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. You say, what in the world did we just read? We're going to walk back through it and try to make sense out of what we just read this evening. Notice, first of all, a characteristic of a fallen culture. Not only do we want to think of it out there, but even the influence of it in our own lives, and our own hearts. Notice in verse 1, pride. An arrogance, even in the action of sin, to not merely be one that gets caught in the midst of a tempting moment and gives way to sin and gives way to wickedness in the, the, the heat of a moment, but one who is even premeditating it, one who is planning and plotting the wickedness of the day even before they arrive out of bed in the morning. Woe to those who devise Iniquity. Devise meaning crafting it up. 
Not that this is even coming from an external temptation. Not, not that things are happening in circumstances that are drawing you away. But a, a person getting to the point where they're, they're devising iniquity. Iniquity meaning transgression, meaning sin, meaning things that aren't right in the eyes of God. They're plotting and they're planning it and they're, they're meditating on how I can bring it about and work out evil on their beds. That's not speaking about sexual immorality. That's speaking about the planning, even on their beds, as they lie there in the morning before they arise. They're, they're working out, they're planning out the actions of the day with no concern about what is right in the eyes of God. They're going to do what brings them the most pleasure. They're going to do what brings them the most uh, advancement in life. And, and the pride and arrogance of having such an attitude. At morning light, they practice it. As soon as the sun is up and they get going, they, they set out on their wickedness. They set out not giving any care or concern about what God desires in their life, about what God says is right to do and not right to do. They plan and plot. They premeditate it and they practice it. Why? Because it is in the power of their hand. Because they believe they can. And therefore, if they can, then why won't I do what I want to do? I can remember, it was like back in 08 or 09, a youth pastor and went to a um, graduation. And of course, the graduation speech is from the uh, salutatorian and valedictorian. The salutatorian gave her speech and uh, mentioned something of Christ and was a very positive-natured uh, speech. And then the valedictorian got up and the valedictorian it was a little sarcastic at first and spoke a little badly of this or that. And then uh, eventually finished off um, the, the speech with this poem that I had never heard before. The last line, once they got to the last lines, I'd, I'd heard the, the last two lines before. But maybe you've heard it before. Invictus. Are you familiar with that one by William Ernest Henley? Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be. For my unconquerable soul. And when I heard that, I went, whoa. We're, we're, this is a little set in opposition to the, the, the testimony of Christ just a moment ago. Thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. I'm not going to bow the head. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace, menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I remember seeing that, that uh, I believe it was a young man, if my memory is serving me right, saying those words with the audience gathered there and most people just did just kind of look each at each other like really you are you think the master of your fate you are the captain of your soul that that poet it was the end of the 1800s and he was obviously atheistic and he was a self-determined individual even through much physical hardship who who wrote this in reflection of his own determination and unconquerable spirit he lived as if he was the one in charge of his life and in charge of all things. 
And this poem throughout the the 20th century became very well known and very well quoted. Even to this day, I would say it is the motto of the world around us. To say, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I will do what I want, when I want, however I want. And who are you to tell me otherwise? One glaring error, error in all of this. God is the master of our fate. God is the captain of our soul. That if there is a God, that if this Scripture is true, that if God is, and God has spoken, and God has revealed His righteousness, and God has revealed His Son, Jesus Christ, like that is, that is arrogant and foolish. It's what pride does. Pride is the root of all sin. Pride is what led Lucifer to fall from heaven when pride uh, came into his heart to say, I am going to receive the glory that is God's. Pride is what led to Adam and to Eve even to fall and rebel against God. I want to have the knowledge of God. I want to be as God and know right from wrong. It has been said pride is the root of all sin. And in a, a very strong sense, it is the root of all sin. We, we are acting out of a self-arrogance, out of a self-independence as if we are God over our lives, as if we are the master of our soul, the captain of our soul, the master of our fates. The people of Israel had gotten to a place where they never, they, they did not recognize God's authority over them any longer. In pride and in arrogance, they determined, I'll do what I want. I'll devise iniquity even on my bed, and I'll get up and I'll do it. Why? Because it's in the power of my hand to do so. Even think of this month when it is celebrated in Pride Month. You know, we, we have elevated pride and self-arrogance to a place where we believe we are the masters of our, our soul, that we can do what we want, however we want, whenever we want. And if there is no God, so be it. Live and do whatever and die, and that's the end. But I believe there is a God. I believe this is His Word and is written upon each and every one of our hearts, even on our conscience, the law of God, where you know right from wrong, and they know it too. Pride is a danger that can tempt all of our hearts and all of our souls. It's not just out there. It's in each and every one of our hearts, even now tonight. The pride to say, I'm going to do it my way. The pride that can creep into a church and cause divisions and arguments and hardships. We all have to work hard to confess pride and to humble ourselves before the Lord. Notice in verse 2, covetousness and selfishness tagging right alongside of it. Verse 2, they covet fields and they take them by violence and houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. And so under the law of Israel, you were never allowed to take a family's dwelling. Uh, it was what they had inherited through God, even dividing the land and giving it to the people, uh, giving it to the tribes of Israel. And even if a man were to come under great debt, um, that land was still their families. And even on the year of Jubilee, everything was returned to them. All of these laws that God had built in had been forgotten and discarded, uh, not of any importance to follow. And they now were at a place where they coveted, Coveting meaning they saw something they wanted that wasn't theirs, and they, in a wrong way, desired it to be theirs, so much so they did whatever it took to get it. Violence, you name it, the most powerful would win the day. The most cruel, the most vicious could take whatever he wanted, whatever he desired. Kind of think of the 
Wild West, old movies where you've got the bandits that come through and, and the way that would work without a sheriff, without any standing for law, standing for justice. Um, they would do what they wanted, and they would be cruel and vicious, and that was what was the culture of the people of God. They, they were being violent to the extent of, of running people out of their own homes and stealing and taking everything that they have, seizing their houses, oppressing people. You, you think of what a, a selfishness is involved in that. It's amazing how selfishness can so blind a person where all they see is their wants and their desires, and it blinds them of any compassion for the needs of another person. Covetousness and selfishness had taken over the culture. Pride had taken over the culture. And so God says in verse 3, going through verse 5, I'm going to bring judgment. Remember, we looked at it last week. God sees every wicked action. God sees every injustice. And God promises, I will make it right. I will bring judgment upon the wicked. I will deliver the weak and the hurting and those that are um, have been oppressed. God is the the father of the oppressed. God is the one who is the friend of those that are, are the outcast of the culture who are going through all these hardships. God sees it. God knows it. God has sympathy for it. And God says, I will make it right. And God says in verses 3 through 5, we won't read it all again, but He says, a day of judgment is coming and it will be so bad that the turncoat, the traitor, the one who's turned away, will be the ones taking over your property. And there will be no one, verse 5, who's going to set the boundaries that you're so worried about expanding. He says the, the enemies, the apostates, are going to come in. And they will take over this land. That's speaking of Babylon and of Assyria before Babylon, who would come in and, and totally wipe out Israel. And the Babylonians come in and totally wipe out Judah, the southern kingdom, because of their wickedness before the Lord. Now back to verse 6. We see he turns back to a description of their sin. And notice verse 6, a third characteristic, there was a hatred for the Word of God. Do not prattle, you say, to those who prophesy. Prattling meaning babbling at a lengthy, you know, for a lengthy time. You say, goodness, you do that every Sunday and Wednesday night. We're going to start calling you the prattler. That's what that, that word means, babbling on with no purpose, foolishness implied, for a lengthy period of time. And so the, this, is, this is the people speaking to Micah in the context here. The people are saying, do not prattle. Stop your foolish babbling. We don't want to hear it, Micah. You who uh, say to those who are prophesying, to those who are truly trying to speak forth the word of God, so they shall not prophesy to you. The, the prophets had stopped prophesying because it was falling upon deaf ears because they were being persecuted by it. And then the, the, the translation in the New King James is a little difficult here at the end of verse 6. They shall not return insult for insult. What is implied there, and some translations reflect it a little bit better, is he's saying, the, the people were saying, we're not going to be ashamed by the shame you're trying to bring upon us. So, so in your proclamation of God's Word, saying that these things are wrong that we're doing, the, the expression there in the Hebrew is meaning intending to be meant that we're, we're not going, you're not going to bring us to a shame over what we're doing. They were unashamed of their sin. They did not see anything wrong with it. A hatred for the Word of God. They didn't want to hear God's Word proclaimed. That when a, a people, even a person, is in the midst of sin, 
And their heart is hardened and their conscience is seared and they're justifying their actions. They're justifying what is iniquity, what is wrong. And they're, they're convinced in, the, in and of themselves that what I'm doing really isn't that bad. I'm actually right in what I'm doing. And our, our, our conscience, we have a way of justifying even the worst of actions. And we, we, we create all of these evidences why it's really a good thing, it's not a bad thing, even though God's Word says it is a bad thing. And then the moment that somebody says, but God has said, you know the anger that is, is being lashed out against Christians now who are taking just a, a basic, traditional biblical understanding of human sexuality and of gender identity? What is that met with? Even when a person's speaking in love and saying, listen, this is actually what's good and beneficial. What God says is best for you. Even one who may be struggling in that area, when you give into those things and you do those things, it actually will work out for your demise. It's sin and the consequences of sin will come because of it. When you, when you even barely mention this thing of, of human sexual uh, sexuality of, of gender identity and speak a biblical truth into a conversation, it's not met in our day and age with the sort of reasonable, rational response. It's not even weighed out at all. It's usually just lashed out against. Well, you bigot, you, you narrow-minded, archaic, you know, thisity, thisity, this, that. Why is that? Because when, when a person's justifying their sin. And trying to make something that even the law of God written upon their heart, they know it's wrong, but they they have adamantly convinced themselves it's not wrong to speak the Word of God into that and say, well, God's Word actually says, produces a hatred, produces a a response, stop your prattling, Stop, stop preaching, stop prophesying to me, stop preaching to me about what God's Word says. This isn't wrong. This is, I've been doing this, and this is how I feel, and this is who I am. And as it was then, so it is now. A hatred for God's Word. Notice verse 7, even a slandering of God. A slandering of God, meaning accusing God or attributing to God things that aren't true. You were named the house of Israel, the house of Jacob. Is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these His doings? And so that's in response to some of the things that they were saying. Well, well, you know, God's the Spirit of the Lord is, is restricted. We don't want to hear the Word of God. Um, that doesn't make a difference in our day and age. And then even, are, are these His doings? God's, God's actually brought this about. God's, they, they would even get to the point where they would say, God is in approval of what we're doing in committing these immoralities and committing these injustices. And then at the end of verse 7, Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. You highlight and underline in your Bible. I would encourage you highlight that second portion of this verse. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. The false prophets declared God was okay with their sin, but they also forgot the goodness of God's word. They slandered God, and they slandered His Word. And Micah, and really God speaking directly through Micah here, this is really a phrase, a verse that I would pull out and want to preach an entire sermon on someday. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. The danger of the hardening nature of sin in our lives as we justify sin, that the danger of 
the deceitfulness of sin, even in the, the, the deceiving nature of Satan himself, the lies that we believe as we enter into sin, that blinds us of this great truth, is that God's Word, what God commands of us, is, is actually not bad for us. There's a dangerous lie of this world that says, well, God's ways are actually restrictive. You know, God's ways are actually what bind you and keep you from doing what is best and doing what is most enjoyable in life, what will bring you the most pleasure. That is the lie of all sin. We think in the moment that doing that sin will bring us greater pleasure in life than doing what God says. That's the temptation of sin, just plain and simple. We believe that doing what God has said we ought not to do is going to bring us better rest, bring us greater joy and satisfaction in life than, than doing what God's Word has declared we ought to do. We think in the moment of temptation, a husband can think sometimes, I will find greater happiness in life by breaking my covenant of marriage and cheating on my wife. And they think even, whether it's usually short-lived because the consequences of sin soon fall, but they think in that moment, I'm going to be better off by doing this. You think you're going to be better off by cheating on that, that you know, banking record and stealing this or stealing that. In that moment, you're not saying, well, God's standards of character and integrity and my finances are actually what's going to bring me the greater benefit. In that moment, you think, no, I'm going to actually be better for lying here on this and cheating here on that and cheating doing this or doing this. That, that is, that's what temptation is. We believe in the moment God's Word isn't best for us. We believe the temptation of sin is better and we act upon it. This is a very fundamental truth that we would all be so much blessed by grasping tonight. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. God's commands, His Word to us, it is not what, what is restrictive and what is Binding us from what is best in our life. You realize that God's Word and His commands are actually what are best for us. It's actually what will bring us the greatest blessing in life, the greatest contentment and joy and satisfaction and happiness in life comes not from the one who is involved in sin and doing what is against God's Word, but it comes to the one who does God's Word. God's Word is good. It does good to him who walks uprightly, to him who's following it, to him who obeys it, that when a person receives by faith the, the gospel and believes upon God and, and then determines, I'm going to follow the ways of the Lord in my life. I've seen it play out time and time and time again, and so as you, have you if you just step back and think about it for a moment. Go all the way back to high school. You go back to high school and you think of the partying crowd, and you think of the ones that were doing, uh, living it up in college. And, and, and where are they now? shouldn't laugh. Some of them, by the grace of God, are doing well. But I can think of many of them that are not, because that is not what is ultimately best. That brings devastation and destruction and disaster into your life. You think about the ones who would have been two-shoes, and the ones who were actually Christians following the Word of God and not doing the things you ought not to do. That, that's actually what brings greater blessing in the long run. To... to be a part of witnessing the passing of some, even some of your spouses who you were in the room right now, and you've lived a faithful life together and obeying God and seeking His ways in your life and, you know, to be married 60, 70 years and, 
and to have the blessing of a family nearby as you, you come to those moments and stages of life. Like, that is blessed. That is happy. That is, that is the goodness that following the Word of God brings. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. Don't buy into the lie that God's Word is restrictive and repressive. God's Word, actually, when you follow it, when you follow His commands, it brings the greatest joys in life and satisfactions and blessings. A slander of God, notice verses 8 and 9, a mistreatment of the vulnerable, speaks of a, a traveler coming through who ought to have been provided for and protected under the law of Israel, who was taken advantage of, who was robbed even of all that he had and left naked and destitute. Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. He says, my, my people aren't living as my people. They're living as the enemy of God. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by and literally leave them destitute and naked like men returned from war. And then he speaks of what's likely the widows of the day and age, the women of my people you cast out. You don't take care of the most vulnerable, especially in that day and age. Uh, the women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children. He says, you've taken away my glory forever. And God says, I am not honored in this. I'm not glorified in such wicked uh, action, in the lack of compassion and care and concern for those who are the most in need in your day and age. Verses 10 and 11, a desire for affirmation and not truth. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is defiled. It shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. He says sin has consequence. Judgment's coming. He says if a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prowler. The, yeah, now or Micah's turning that term back on them. Even he would be the prattler of this people. So what is Micah saying here? If a man should walk in, and so someone unknown with a false spirit, somebody speaking lies, not bringing forth the word of God, but somebody merely there to give this prophecy, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink. So, so I'm going to give you a word, a prophecy. I'm going to say it's from God of, of wealth and health and prosperity tonight. Repeat after, no, um, some of you might gain the context of that, others didn't, you're staring at me with a blank stare. Wealth, health, and prosperity, go and live your best life, and be prosperous in all that you do, and may the Lord expand your boundaries, and I speak nothing of ridding your life of pride, and of covetousness, and of selfishness, uh, of spiritual arrogance before the Lord, of immorality, of of injustices even that, that you are committing in your life. We don't want to speak about anything that's sinful, anything that's negative, anything that's, that's bad. And all that I have to say is I'm going to give you a prophecy of wine and of drink, of, of expansion and of blessing, in spite of the life that you're living that's filled with such sin and immorality before God. And you know what Micah says? He would be the prattler of this people. And he's speaking in reality of what was going on. The prophets of the day and age were merely charlatans. They were whatever would bring them the pay, they would say. But whatever it is that the people wanted to hear, they would tell them and tickle their ears in order that they can be affirmed in their life rather than confronted in their life. 
We like to be affirmed, don't we? Especially when we're justifying our sin and we can get another voice, especially if it's a religious voice, to affirm us in what we're doing. We like that. Those are the ones that we'll listen to. Those are the ones that will draw the crowds to to come to hear the, the message being preached. I will prophesy to you of wine and drink. That's the one who will be the prattler of this people. Jesus in His grace and in His mercy is pictured in verses 12 and 13. There's a division in between verse 11 and verse 12. And so separate that out a little bit as you think of it taking a turn now. This is a new um, paragraph, so to speak. And it is a, a vision that God gives of Israel being restored by a shepherd. By the grace of God, in spite of the sinfulness of the, of the, the day and age, God says, no, there's still coming a day. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. And so we've gone from words of judgment now to this image of, of restoration. This image of of a shepherd gathering his sheep that were dispersed, that were in danger, and bringing them together. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come out before them. This is a messianic prophecy of the the work of the true shepherd of God. They will uh, break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. And it is a bit of a strange ending in the chapter, but it's a, a picture even prophetically of the work God would do through Christ, through the Redeemer, through the Restorer, through the one who says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep, even for unworthy, wicked sinners. And yet, yet and while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. And even back in the Old Testament, the grace of God is manifested. It's made known to the people. God's desire is not to condemn and destroy. God's desire is to forgive and redeem. That He longs for the sinner to repent, to turn and find grace, to find forgiveness. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, and we'll close very shortly after this. New Testament, Paul writing to Timothy. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power says, and from such people turn away. You can't be a part of those things. We're called to live as salt and as light. We're called to live as God's people in holiness and in righteousness and, and doing justice and having compassion. For this of this sort of people are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the as it was then, so it is now. And we do have a call tonight as we close to say, God, keep me from such things. God, don't let a fallen world around me uh, so 
influence me that I become like them and not like Christ. And it's a call to examine our lives even now in closing and say, God, are, are there any of these things in my life? Has pride crept into my heart? Has covetousness or selfishness crept in? Am I, am I truly learning about and reading and studying and striving to follow God's Word, knowing it's what's good for me, what's actually the greatest blessing upon my life? Am I having compassion for the needs of those who are most vulnerable? Am I desiring affirmation? Or am I really desiring truth? Because I want the truth from God. Examine your heart. Examine your life. And in this invitation, if God has led you to conviction, confess, repent, find His grace and forgiveness this evening, and leave renewed and restored in, in Him tonight. Heavenly Father, we come to You, Lord. We thank You for Your Word, for Its power to convict, Lord, for the truth of it, that it is timeless, that it speaks to people back in Micah's day and their sin and in their need of repentance. Lord, it speaks so powerfully into our life even now tonight, today, into our culture today, and in our need to recognize sin for what it is and to turn to You and find Your grace, find Your love, find Your pardon and mercy. Lord, I pray tonight for any that any of us who have let some of these things creep into our lives, that You would convict draw us to repentance and your loving kindness. Lord, I pray more than all if there be one in here who's never been convicted of their sin and never turned to you in in Christ's name. Lord, maybe tonight they would. They would come to see their need of salvation, their need to find your forgiveness and redemption, that they would see Christ crucified upon the cross for their sins, buried and raised again. Tonight they turn and believe upon him as Lord and Savior. We pray this in his name, for his honor, for his glory.